But his public ministry, which comes to a close here in, in this chapter, it ends on a really strange note. Uh, it ends with Jesus being rejected by the masses of people that he spoke to. There were some people who believed in him, that's for sure. He had his little band of friends and a lot of other people flocked to him for what he could give them. But more often than not, the the main thing John keeps taking us back to is Jesus getting rejected. And not only rejected, but rejected by the people who on paper should have been the most ready to understand and love him. He came first to his own people. He came to the people of Israel who had the prophets, the ones who had been looking ahead to a Messiah who would come, the ones who had already received the signs Jesus came to sort of build upon and, and flesh out for them. If anyone was going to take this guy seriously, it should have been them. And most of them had rejected him. So verse 37 says that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why? Why did his own people, by and large, reject him? That's the burden of this passage. That's what John wants to explain. Where unbelief comes from. Why Jesus was rejected. You can understand why this would be a problem, right? Think about the people that John was writing to. So this is several decades after the, the events themselves. John is writing to them, telling them about Jesus trying to bring them in on what he was like, what he said, what he did. And you can imagine one of the burdens that he would have had in his own mind, one of the things that the earliest Christians probably were dealing with all the time, and that is trying to explain why anyone outside of Israel should take seriously a Messiah who was rejected by Israel, especially as the gospel starts to work itself out into the cities of the Roman Empire. It's, it's going to these places that are the centers of culture and power for the known world at that time. And what they're taking with them is this message about some provincial backwater and its own little prophecies and some guy who thinks that he's the creator of the universe and come to earth. You can imagine how well that would have played in Rome if Jesus wasn't even convincing to his own people. I mean, just imagine if you hear some guy from Bucksnort, Tennessee, claiming to be Messiah, come to solve the world's problems. But you hear, Bucksnort's a real place, by the way. Have you guys seen that sign? It's just west of here, off I-40. What if you heard that most folks in Bucksnort rejected this guy? That even his own family and friends, even the ones who stood to gain the most from whatever fame this guy would have, didn't take him seriously, thought he was crazy. How likely are you here in Nashville to take that guy seriously? And this, is the, this is the situation that the, that the first Christians found themselves in. The fact of Jesus' rejection by his own people had to be explained. They had to do something with that. We want to trace John's explanation of their unbelief this morning, try to understand it. And and even though we don't find ourselves in the same position that the early Christians did, we still find ourselves in in a culture that is more and more, all the time, hostile towards Christianity, or at the very least, uh, more secular. More and more, you guys are finding yourselves working in environments where your belief is foolish to those that you work around, right? Whether at university or, or, or not, my guess is the majority of the people that you're around don't take Jesus that seriously. And one of the things that does to all of us 
when we're in an environment like that is make us wonder why should we take him that seriously? If these people who are experts, these folks with PhDs, don't think Jesus should be taken seriously, then why should we? Another way to to frame the same question is, if we should take Jesus seriously, what explains the fact that these would-be intelligentsia aren't taking him seriously? Why don't they believe? Those are the questions we want to unpack together this morning. They're exactly what John is trying to explain to us as he closes out Jesus' public ministry. So before we get any further, I want to read the passage that we're going to unpack And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 12, beginning in the second part of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We want to understand unbelief this morning. That's our focus. And understanding unbelief, guided by this passage, I think there are three steps we've got to take, three connections that we have to make to understand where unbelief comes from and how to be careful of it. We need to understand the connection between unbelief and punishment. That's the first section. That's the quotes that John makes from from the prophet Isaiah. We need to understand the connection between unbelief and love. That's John's example in verses 42 and 43 of folks who believed in Jesus, sort of, until it meant getting kicked out of the synagogue that they wanted to be part of, and then they didn't believe in him. What you love affects unbelief. And then finally, unbelief and opportunity. Unbelief and opportunity. Those are the three steps we're going to take. I'm going to start with unbelief and punishment. This is the first answer to the question why people don't believe in Jesus when he comes. 
And it's the most surprising one by far. They don't believe, we're told here, because God planned for them not to believe. Their unbelief is God's punishment. Now let me show you where this comes up, and then we'll try to clarify how to respond to this idea. First, let's, let's see it in the text, then we'll come back to it. Try to make some clarifications, what it isn't saying, what it is saying, so that we can know how, we're best, how best to respond to it. Here's where it comes from. The claim comes straight from the teaching of Isaiah the prophet. In verse 41, after he's quoted from him, John said that when Isaiah was talking, and what, the, what these folks would have read and known, back when Isaiah was talking, what he was, what he was seeing then, what he was really talking about, was Jesus. He saw him. He saw his coming. He saw his glory. And he spoke of him. What did he say about him? Verse 40, verse, excuse me, verse 38 says that the people did not believe in Jesus. They still didn't believe in him so that or for the purpose of the prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah being fulfilled. The reason they didn't believe is that Isaiah had prophesied that they wouldn't. Then he quotes from Isaiah in verses 38. 38 and 40. Verse 38 is a quote from Isaiah 53. We read it earlier in our worship service. Brian read it for us. It speaks of the fact that when, when the, the suffering servant, this Messiah figure, the one who would come and solve the world's problems, when he gets here, he's not what anybody's looking for. He had no form that we should recognize him. He had no beauty that we should respect him or love him. He had nothing about him to draw us in. He doesn't look like what we would expect. Isaiah had told them about that hundreds of years ago, that he would come as one who suffers. He would not come as one who would win for himself a bunch of, a bunch of devoted followers who'd be likely to put his face on a poster or a t-shirt or something. He isn't that kind of savior. He's not that kind of charismatic figure. He's not one anyone's looking for. No one likes what they see when they see him. It was predicted that no one would believe what they heard. Verse 39 takes it even further. Because Isaiah had predicted this, the people therefore could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, here it's explaining it more. Why couldn't they believe? And this is where we take it even, even further. So far, what we've seen is a prediction that people would reject Jesus. That's what comes out in, in chapter, the quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Prediction that Jesus, that Jesus would be rejected. But then, it, it, verse 40 takes it a, another step. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And we won't take time to read it, but Isaiah 6 is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's a passage where Isaiah is transported into the presence of God, and he gets a vision of God's glory. It's really mysterious. We don't know exactly what he was seeing, but we know that whatever he was seeing, the only thing the other beings in this scene could do is just cry out, holy, holy, holy. They got another word for it. Holy, holy, holy. Their whole existence, for all of their existence, is crying out the same word. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah sees something no one else has ever seen and survived. But as Isaiah is gearing up, coming out of that vision, to share this vision of the glory of God with the people, God predicts to him that they will not want to hear it that they, they aren't looking for the glory of God. What was beautiful to Isaiah would be a turnoff to them. And the father tells him, when you go out there, your ministry is going to fail. But that that's part of the plan. 
Verse 40 is a quote from chapter 6, giving God the responsibility for blinding the eyes of those who would hear Isaiah, for hardening their hearts so that they don't respond to what he says, and doing it precisely in order that they would not turn to him, doing it as a form of punishment. Now, I don't think it serves us or the text to try to soften what it says. It really does say that God ensures their unbelief. That God hardens hearts so that people won't believe. It really does say that unbelief can be the result of God's just punishment for sin. That this is one way God punishes those who have rejected him. It's a horrible thought. And it's communicated to us here. It's preserved here for us so that we'll be warned. So that a holy sense of fear will drive us to Jesus. And will motivate our prayers for our friends who don't believe. It is a horrible thing to come under the judgment of the God who made us. I'm going to say more about what we should do with this text in just a moment, but first I want to clarify what it is saying, what it isn't saying. What it is saying and what it isn't saying. Here we are, I'm going to warn you, in this passage, reading about God and his influence over human belief, we are being brought into one of the greatest mysteries in the Bible. A mystery that no one has ever been able to unravel one that stretches the categories of our thinking, that boggles our minds, and that leaves them that way. But we can get at least more clear on what the Bible is and is not saying. We may not be able to resolve the mystery, but we can, we can protect ourselves from misreading it. And that's what I want to do with what time we've got here. So, so here, what is the Bible saying? A few observations here. Here's the first one. Neither here in this passage or anywhere else does the Bible claim that God hardens somebody who wants to believe and rest in him. Not here, not anywhere else does the Bible talk about God judging someone by hardening their heart when their posture towards him to start with was longing or desire or love and affection. Not a picture of someone wanting God's grace and love and, and not receiving it. In fact, just the opposite is affirmed all over the Bible. That anyone who ever does seek him, he receives. And he will never turn away. The Bible is full of unequivocal, crystal clear, for all the mystery here, unequivocal, crystal clear promises that if you come to him, he will receive you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. He will take you in. We've already seen that kind of language in John. John chapter 6 is one of the best known ones. Whoever comes, I will never cast out. No matter what they do, no matter how, what they've already done, they are mine now and forever. That's John chapter 6. It's crystal clear. There's no mystery there. Now, the, the problem is that there's no one who seeks him. The psalmist had written of that. The apostle Paul unpacks that in, in depth. There is none who is righteous, the psalmist says. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. No one wants him. 
Israel's history plays this out time and time again. God coming to them in grace, speaking to them, making a covenant with them, delivering them over and over, and over and over again, they run after idols. And, and this, is not a, this is not about bashing on Old Testament Israel. We know that we ourselves do this all the time. How much has God given us, and how quickly are we discontent? How many times has he delivered us, and how quickly are we given to fear and anxiety about a future that is in his hands? Over and over, our default mode, Israel's default mode, the human heart's default mode is rejection of God, self-reliance, and resistance to his rule. Now, there's two other places, two other examples I can give you where the idea of God hardening someone comes out really clearly and reinforces what I'm trying to say now, that it isn't like someone is begging for God and then God turns them away, refuses them. That never happens anywhere. There are a couple other places where hardening is talked about. One of those places is in Exodus. Paul even quotes it in one of his letters. In Exodus, when the children of Israel are in bondage uh, in Egypt, and, and God is, project, uh, is projecting into the future, telling Moses, giving him a little sense of what he's going to do to deliver them. And he tells him that, that, he, that he's going to come to Pharaoh and ask for the freedom to go, but God is going to harden his heart and judge him. And then the scene happens, uh, one scene after another. Each one of these plagues that come on the, on the nation of Egypt. After each one, Moses goes to Pharaoh and they have a talk. Are you ready yet? Are you going to let the people go? No, he refuses. No, he refuses. And it gets to a point where, in the story, we're told that God hardens his heart. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh won't let them go, so that he can demonstrate his own power even over the most powerful nation in the known world. Now, was Pharaoh just a a pawn or a puppet in God's Machiavellian plan to show himself to be great? It's not like that. Pharaoh was fully engaged in this plan. He fully, he fully was given to keeping the people of Israel and exploiting them for his own purposes. Here's a second point. It's built straight from that. Here's a second observation about this text. And the rest, this text and the rest of Scripture assume that God can be sovereign over human choices and that humans can be responsible for their choices at the exact same time. That God can be sovereign, that he can be influencing choices, and that humans are fully free and fully responsible for the choices they make at exactly the same time. Now, how that can be true is a mystery that no one can understand. Just stop trying to figure it out. You're not going to. The God of the Bible so often and in so many ways just won't fit into the categories that we use to make sense out of the world. And if he made the world, if he is the one who established everything that is, it shouldn't surprise us that he would be bigger than what our minds can get around. What the Bible tells us clearly is that God is in control, even over belief and unbelief, and that humans are fully responsible and free over belief and unbelief at the same time. How? I don't know. But it says it's true at exactly the same time. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, so I'm going to go ahead now to the third observation about this passage the fact here's the third one the fact that god is sovereign over human belief and unbelief should give us not just holy fear talked about that earlier at the the threat of judgment should give us not just holy fear 
but also great hope. The fact that God is not at the mercy of the human will, the fact that he is sovereign, as sovereign over belief and unbelief as he is sovereign over everything else that he made, is not just a cause of holy fear, but also of great hope. Now, it is a cause of holy fear. We, it should drive the, the thought of unbelief as a judgment of God on us or on our friends should break our hearts. Think right now, who is it in your life that doesn't believe? Who are you thinking about? Now think about the, the idea that God might give them what they deserve. Give them over to what they're saying about him right now and harden them in their unbelief. That should break your heart and it should cause you to desperately pray for mercy. But there's a positive flip side here. If God is, if, his, if the same God whose power extends to hardening hearts, if, if that same God is the God who promised in the prophet Ezekiel to swap out hearts of stone for hearts of flesh, then he is a God who won't be boxed in by what people feel right here, right now. He is a God who can take a heart that is hardened and give it a beating, pulsating love and affection for him and all that he is. You can't have it both ways, friends. If we're going to pray to him at all, we assume that he has some control, that he can influence the matter. It comes with the sense that he's also in control of unbelief, a tough pill for us to swallow for sure. But, but that sovereignty, that same sovereignty is the source of all of our hopes for ourselves, for the coming of his kingdom, for the belief of our friends who don't believe. He has to be sovereign. We don't have the words that can convince them. But if he is sovereign, we can go to him. We can, we can put ourselves out there as he calls us to, knowing we don't have the answers, and trust him to do what's best. Trust that he is the one who changes hearts. Any hope that we have for ourselves or for anyone else is rooted in his sovereignty, even over unbelief and belief. And that there's no one who is beyond the reach of his mercy. Faith is always a gift of God. John 3 reminded us of that. No one gets into the kingdom unless they're born again, unless God gives them something they don't yet have. And so there is no one who's past hope. We pray. We pray for his mercy. Now, the next two verses, verses 42 and 43, point us to something we've already hinted at. That at the same time that God is responsible for unbelief, humans themselves are responsible too. So what we're trying to do is understand where unbelief comes from. Point number one is that you've got to understand the connection between unbelief and judgment, punishment. Sometimes unbelief is God's punishment on someone who's rejected him. Some, but, but at the same time, to understand unbelief, we have to understand it from the human perspective. We talk about it from God's perspective, but verses 42 and 43 point us towards a human perspective. Unbelief, the connection between unbelief and love. That our belief in Jesus is not just a matter of our intellect deciding whether or not there's enough evidence to accept him or reject him. But, but what our hearts love, what our hearts want to be true, The example that we're given here in verses 42 and 43 is of some religious leaders, some insiders in the Jewish world 
who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, but they didn't truly believe. They didn't really submit to him and identify with his kingdom because they couldn't live with what was going to come next if they did that. Verse 42 says, Many of the authorities, even the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, the ultimate insiders, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. They wanted to stay on the inside. And verse 43 explains what's really going on. They love the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God. They love to be praised, to be celebrated, to be affirmed, to be accepted by their peers. They live for that. They can't live without that. And they won't do anything to risk that. And if that's what you love, you won't love Jesus. If that's what you love, you won't believe in him. We've seen this quote before. John here is basically paraphrasing something Jesus himself said back in chapter 5. Jesus said, how can you believe? How can you believe? When you receive glory that comes from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. When people and their estimation of you is bigger in your mind and heart than the God who made you and what he thinks of you, then you won't believe in Jesus. They don't see and love Jesus because they don't really see and love God. And here we've got to be careful, once again, not to just beat up on the, history, on the children of Israel at this time 2,000 years ago and insulate ourselves from the same thing that has led them to unbelief. Humans, all of us, through all of time, we are relentless self-promoters. We're all of us locked in on what some have called self-justification, on our desire to establish ourselves as unique and important as worthwhile and accepted, as owning or possessing a life that matters. And one of the surest ways to get this sense, to get this self-justification, to get the assurance that our lives matter, one of the surest ways to get there is when other people approve of us. We know it's true when other people tell us that it's true. And this basic human drive affects so many of the choices that we make, doesn't it? From petty things like what we wear to what events we'll go to based on who else we expect to be there to even who we vote for. And it affects how we think, too. It affects what we're willing to accept as true. All of us have a grid, whether we recognize it or not, that includes, as part of it, some sense of whether this belief will get me in or force me out. Those of us who raise in Christian uh, settings, we can see sometimes that the, the effect that our communities have had on, a, on our belief, you know, that we believe what we were always told to believe. Maybe somebody's been holding back on us. Maybe I never really believed it. Maybe they were telling me something that wasn't true. 
And the fact that the community has shaped what we have believed to be true can, can cause us to doubt. But there's another way to come at that same issue. We've got to turn the same critical eye onto the community of belief that raises skepticism about Jesus. As often, we and others are most tempted not to believe in him because we're part of a community of people who don't. Because we belong somewhere, or want to, where attaching ourselves to Jesus would cost us the approval or affection that we want from other people. That we might be surrounded by a strong incentive not to, be, not to believe in a God who can constrain what I can do. Not to, maybe, maybe this is even more true, a strong incentive not to believe in a God who calls in question what is loved by the people that I want to love me. I can't afford to attach myself to a, a Savior who comes condemning the things that those people that I love are doing. This basic human desire, it's, it, 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 this, this desire that is in every single one of us, desire for praise or glory from other people, isn't compatible with what Jesus came to bring. And to whatever extent we run for it, to that extent we're running away from Jesus. And that is not a matter of the intellect. That is not about weighing evidence. That is about what we love. And if we love the glory that comes from man, we will not love God or the one that he sent. So the conclusion here is to watch your heart. You've got to be suspicious, friends, of what you're aiming at. On the positive flip side, you've got to, you've got to see that, that coming to believe in Jesus is a matter of love. So we, we, we talked about rejecting him is a matter of what the heart loves, that it loves something else more. But the surest ticket to you having a full and vibrant confidence in Jesus is not just bolstering your mind with new arguments that can defeat those of your friends, but also stirring up your heart to love and worship the one who came for you. Because until you love him, you won't fully believe in him. And your, your belief such as it is will be vulnerable to the shifting winds of your heart. Here's the last thing I want to say. The last connection. If we want to understand belief, unbelief, we've got to understand unbelief and punishment, unbelief and love. But we would, we, would be, we would be remiss if we didn't finish by emphasizing the connection between unbelief and opportunity. We've said some things that are hard to hear. We've asked the question, who's responsible for unbelief? And the answer is, God is responsible for unbelief. And the answer is, humans are responsible for unbelief. The answer is that both, at the same time, all the way through, are responsible. It stretches our minds, but the Bible insists that they're all in play, that they're completely compatible, and there's no accepting Christianity without accepting the limits to our understanding. But some things are really clear, and I want to finish on a note of clarity. One of these clear things comes through in the last paragraph, and that clear thing is this. The same God who punishes sinners with unbelief, came into the darkness of unbelief to shine his light and to give life. Same God who we're told here hardens hearts has come himself into the world, into the darkness of unbelief as a light that the darkness can't overpower. And he's come to give life. 
The last paragraph makes this point several times. It's a point that we've seen several times already. In fact, uh, most people that I read believe that verses 44 to 50 are a kind of summary of everything Jesus had said so far. And if you've been with us through this study, you can see that. A lot of the same, a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same uh, maybe dichotomies is the best word for it. A lot of the same things pitted against each other, like light and darkness and salvation and judgment. Hearing and believing versus rejecting God's words. The themes are really familiar. But the, what, they, what they combine to tell us is that God is for us, that he has come to us into the realm of our judgment and unbelief to, precisely in order to save us out of it. And that anyone who hears his words and receives them will be saved. Now let me quickly just point you to these details before we close. A few important points. Here's the first one. I want you to see, friends, that Jesus coming into the world, that was an action not just of Jesus as the Son of God, but was an action of God the Father, the same God who we're told hardened hearts, is the God who comes into the world through his Son. That's what Jesus says over and over in this passage. He wants to make sure we know that in seeing him, we see the Father. In hearing him, we hear the Father. He's the one who sent him. Look at verses 44 and 45. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Then skip down to verses 49 and 50. Same thing. I haven't spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And his commandment, the Father's commandment, the God who hardens hearts, his commandment is eternal life. He's come for that. So Jesus coming into the world is not Jesus trying to convince his Father not to judge people. It is his Father sending him so that people can be saved. God is complicated. He's complicated. But this much is clear. He longs to see the children that he made know him, love him, and have life in him. Here's the second thing. Jesus came into a world of darkness to shine as light. He came into darkness and ignorance and rebellion because those are the default mode. The default mode is not happy people who are maybe a little bit ignorant who need someone to to point them in the right direction. Jesus doesn't come to people who are blank slates. Jesus comes into darkness. The default is people rejecting God and not enjoying the things that he has made for them to enjoy. When he comes, he comes not for judgment, but for salvation. Did you see how often he says that? Look especially in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, those who don't believe, Jesus says, I'm not judging him. Well, he's judged already. He said that back in chapter 3. Apart from me, he has no hope. The reality is ignorance and darkness and rebellion. The judgment is there. I'm coming in that he can be saved. I'm coming in for an opportunity. Jesus says in verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And that's what he means. The default for the world, darkness, ignorance, rebellion. What Jesus comes in for is not to judge them. That's happened already. That's a, that's a foregone conclusion in their darkness, ignorance, and rebellion. What he comes for is to save them. And here's the last thing. What he offers, what Jesus came to offer in a world of darkness and ignorance and rebellion, he offers to everybody, without exception, to all who will believe in him. There is no exception. Whatever 
mystery we attach to God's hardening of hearts, we know, he says here, with absolute crystal clarity, that there is no one who will ever come to him that he won't make new. He came to save, and he came to save all who trust in him. He came to enable belief. He came to give opportunity for freedom from darkness to anyone who believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, Jesus is saying here, in this last paragraph, that his words are the key. And that is life to us. Because we don't get to see him. We didn't see him raise Lazarus or make... Meal, a meal for 5,000 people out of one boy's little snack. We don't get to see him, but Jesus says here, the words are the key. You have my words. It is my words that judge or my words that save. Come to my words. Come to me through my words. We have today the one thing that's really necessary for connecting with Jesus. And those words are words of promise as well as warning. They are words that if you grab onto this life raft, you will be saved. Now, your reality is drowning in a sea that, you, that is bigger than you and more powerful than you. You can, re, you can choose to reject these words that come to you as life itself. But if you grab them, if any of you grab them, then you will be saved. That opportunity is here for you. It is right now. It is in these words. So what will you do with them? Father, we need your spirit to help us do with them what we should. We want to believe and we know that apart from your, the new birth that you've told us we need, that we have no hope. There's none of us who is any more conditioned to receive Jesus than anyone else. All of us are among those who, who have gone our own way like sheep. And yet you've promised us that all of our sin has been laid on him. And so we through Jesus and through his words, want to claim that promise. Want to see that light and know that life that he came to give us. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.